Welcome to Research Uncensored, a podcast by Research FDI, your trusted investment attraction and business intelligence partner. Join me, Bruce Tackethman, and my co-host, Amber Hunter, as we bring you behind the scenes with economic development professionals around the world. We're going to find out the real stories behind the project wins and get to know some of the top players in the game today. We would like to thank the Next Move Group for sponsoring today's podcast. Next Move Group helps small to medium-sized companies, communities, and organizations create economic growth through executive searches that assist economic development organizations with hiring quality EDO professionals. They also provide site selection services to manufacturers, in addition to a suite of products designed to help organizations be successful. Welcome to another episode of Research Uncensored, joined as always by my co-host, Amber Hunter. Hi, Bruce. How are you doing today? I'm pumped. We got Jacques Rougeau, the Mountie, on the program. I know. I can't wait. Uh, For all our listeners out there, Bruce loves the WWE, so this is very exciting for the both of us. Uh, I've met Jacques before. He's prominent in Montreal, former WWE star. He's also a motivational speaker. He's done a lot to promote our city and to help the youth by uh, giving... Talks on anti-bullying. So, without further ado, let's bring in Jock, and I can't wait for everyone to hear his passion and his just uh, larger-than-life personality. So, I think we should dial in. All right, let's welcome our next guest, all the way from La Belle Province, former WWE Intercontinental Champion, three-time Tag Team Champion, and Quebec wrestling legend Jacques Rougeau, the Mountie. Bienvenue at Research Uncensored. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Amber. How are you today? Great. It's good to have you back. Uh, good, good, good to be with you again. Last time we saw you was uh, in our office a couple of years ago, so good to be reconnected. And amazing. And actually, it looks like I'm from Hawaii with the palm tree back behind me, but I'm not. I'm really <laughs> from uh, Rodden, about an hour north of Montreal, but I, I got this little tiki I made up because uh, I'm starting my podcasts, and, and we have this in this little thing here, so it's really awesome. You're a long way from Memphis, Tennessee, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy! Dirty uh, laundry. When I was when I was in Memphis, Tennessee, you remind me of so many souvenirs right off the bat. But uh, I was tag team with Butch Reed, and uh, we were the Salt and Pepper team, and because uh, he was black and I was white, and uh, but, but but it was good times. And and I remember before I became the tag team champions over there, I had a, a spot in solo, and. Uh, I used to have a big boombox, a radio that I'd put on the side of my shoulder like this, and my and I'd go to the ring because Jerry Lawler didn't want to give me a, uh, he didn't want to give me the the music like the other boys that were more important. So I brought my own boombox, and <laughs> it was uh, oh yeah, that was fun. That went far. You can ask Jim Cornette; he'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be sure to text him after this podcast. <laughs> so, Jacques, I wanted to thank you again for for uh, joining us today. Uh, for our listeners that may not know, there's many American listeners out there. The Rougeau family is iconic, you could say, in Quebec. They have a massive legacy in WWE and in professional wrestling. Can you kind of speak to that legacy that the family has within the province? You know the uh, the Rougeau name is is something really special in Quebec. Uh, some parts also of the states, and because of WB uh, Raymond and I, we had a chance to have the name put on the map. But my uncle Johnny Rougeau and my father Jacques Rougeau, because I'm junior, <laughs> and uh, they were really the they were the big boys. Uh, they were like the uh, 
uh, Maurice Richard in hockey. They were uh, Guy Lafleur in hockey. They were uh, my uncle Johnny did so many things for the province of Quebec. He was uh, he actually was right hand man of uh, René Lévesque, the guy who wanted to separate from Quebec from Canada so many years my, uh, to become a province. Uh, my uncle Johnny was in politics. He was his right hand man, and uh, and then he also. Uh, He also uh, went into hockey. He had a hockey league in the junior hockey league just before the NHL. It was junior hockey league, and he had it own, his own team. And uh, and then he went on to be president of the whole league. And uh, uh, so, so my uncle Johnny, plus he was so implicated in uh, in and uh, he had a club, a nightclub called the Macambo. It almost sounds like the Cobo Cabana, but anyway, it was a Macambo. And uh, and he all the uh, American. Uh, artists and singers like Chubby Checker, Tina Turner, they all come to Montreal and, and come and perform at my uncle's place. And, and my uncle Johnny was a very wise businessman. All, but my father, Jacques, he was a total complete. Uh, he was different completely. Uh, my father, Jacques, uh, who, by the way, passed away last year, not looking for any sympathy, but he was a big, big, big part of my life. He was my idol and everything. And I'll explain to you why. Uh, my father at the Macambo Club, the Cobo Cabana Club there in Montreal, he was uh, he was the doorman. And uh, and Montreal was a very famous city for uh, for the Marines that would come down St. Lawrence from the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean to St. Lawrence River and all the way up to Montreal. And, and you know, those guys that didn't get off the ship for about 20 days, they were looking for some pleasures. And uh, so they'd go to the Macambo and uh, they they they, uh, they all weren't angels if you know what i mean and uh so uh, when they were out of place uh, my father was the doorman he had to take those big guys and uh, and put them back in place and uh, that was the the side of the rougeau family the tough side of it was my father my father was also a golden glove champ champion in boxing uh and uh So, so he was six foot four and 240 pounds. And unlike me, who's an artist and a simple guy who likes to, I went into wrestling because it was all fixed. <laughs> My father is a really tough guy. He was really a street fighter. There was two guys in Montreal that were really, really known to be tough guys in those days. And it was, it was Maurice Madad Vachon and my father, uh, Jacques Crujo. And uh, so, so they brought on a lot in the, uh, the society in Quebec. And they were there present for many, many years. And then Raymond came along. And then I came along. And then Arma came along. And then my three sons came along. And uh, so, yes, the Rougeau family is uh, four generations, actually, because I have my great-granduncle, Eddie Oje was the first one who started it all so Eddie Yoshi was the first one and then he had his sister Albina and Albina had two kids with Johnny and Jacques Rougeau so so we have four generations of wrestling and uh, so yeah I would say the uh, my, my parents and my and my family did a lot for the community but they uh, they also were very uh, respectful towards uh, the people and the fans Wow, that's a very dominant family tree you have there. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you were oh, well, well taken care of you, growing up. <laughs> um, aside, well, you know, uh, the grass is not always greener in the neighbors, you know. Yeah, maybe they <laughs> but, uh, the tough guy. But what I'm saying is, my, you had a lot of compromises. We had to compromise a lot. Uh, because uh, my, they had an image. My father and my uncle had images of clean, good guys and no drugs, no uh, alcohol, nightclubs, no tattoos, no, 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 and no. So, uh, so, so when you walk in those footsteps, not always easy. 
Wow. So beyond the your family legacy, who would you say are the best rel- uh, wrestlers that Quebec has produced? Well, I would say that uh, Ricky Martel, uh, as far as a wrestler, was a great wrestler. Uh, Kevin Owen is was my student. Uh, I taught Kevin Owen for five years before he hit the road, and uh, so so Kevin Owen became a good wrestler, just didn't take care of himself, but uh, but but was a good wrestler. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I wish he would have took care of his shape a little bit more, but uh, but that maybe that was his gimmick. But but when he was with me, he was a high flying little kid and doing four fifties in the ring and all kinds of stuff. And we created a great uh, talent with Kevin Owen. I would say Dino Bravo also deserves a, a lot of credit because Dino Bravo uh, he was lacking a few things like on the microphone and and then, but 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 people believed in him in Montreal. What a strong guy! What a he, he was he was actually my boss for a long time in the international wrestling with Gino Brito and Frank Valo and Andre the Giant. They owned the promotion in Montreal. And Tony Muley was also part of that. There were five uh, promoters put together. But I would say, yeah, Dino Bravo and Ricky Martel, uh, Kevin Owen. I'm trying to think of um, other names that really hit me in Quebec uh, at, that, at that level. Maybe you have suggestions that I'm forgetting. <laughs> would, you, uh, would you put Sami Zayn at that level too? You know, I don't know Sami. Uh, you know, another thing I got to tell you, which you're probably going to, it's almost embarrassing saying that, but because of my differences with Vince McMahon I had many years ago, I, it's been 20 years since I watched TV and wrestling. So I don't, when Stone Cold arrived, uh, that was the end of my era. I, I don't know those those new talents that came. And me, it was more like a Undertaker and those guys and uh, and Big Boss Man and Macho Man and Ric Flair and Jake the Snake and uh, I could go on and on. Killer Bees, uh, uh, you know that era with actually you know Coco Beware with the birds and it, it was a good era from '85 to I would say to, to even Tito Santana. I, I loved working with Tito Santana. I ran into him actually. Uh, I met him in Ontario maybe seven months ago in St. Thomas. I met, I ran into him. What a nice guy. He's a gentleman. He's, he's he's great. How does he look? He looks great, actually. He's a teacher in New Jersey. Uh, he looks great. He looks like he can still go. And he was talking about some of his great matches. I think you wrestled him at WrestleMania 7, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. I shocked him. But, uh, <laughs> but what a great... You know, uh, just a guy with a nice smile on his face all the time, easygoing in his dressing room. And it was very rare in those days that a lot of the guys were... Not that they had a, a a nice smile or this and that. It just wasn't steady. It was like uh, because of the the, the, the the traveling 25 days a month, the booze, the pills and everything. And, and so a lot of guys were like up and down, up and down. And, and but Tito Santana, just like that. Uh, Ricky Martel, just like that. Big Boss Man, just like that. Akeem, just like that. Jimmy Hart. I could name a bunch of guys that that took their business really, really seriously, and uh, and those guys were really fun to, to to work with because most of those guys who didn't go party all night and and do all that kind of stuff were actually uh, good family men uh, that have families at home and like I did and like Raymond did and uh, and so we have responsibilities and when you have responsibilities, well you. And I had good, uh, I had good, uh, uh, I was taught well by my father and my dad. 
uh, about how to do things in the business. Raymond taught me a lot too, I gotta admit that. And I'll bring up a point which is really cool and I'll give you a scoop. Uh, we were uh, four years, me and Raymond and WWF, we were first the, the Rougeau brothers, then we became for two years, then two years later we became uh, the fabulous Rougeau brothers with Jimmy Hart. And I was looking at Raymond and I was saying, Raymond, just before we turned uh, heels, uh, bad guys, uh, I talked to Raymond because our run was coming to an end after two years, because no matter how good we are, we were Quebecers, we were Canadians, we weren't Americans. And and and, and, and Americans uh, didn't want to actually uh, Quebec baby faces to go over so hard. Uh, I don't know why, but it was just like that. And... Uh, Anyway, I was sitting in the car, I was coming down from Los Angeles, and we're going down to San Diego. And one night I told Raymond, I said, hey, Ray, why don't we, get, why don't we just try taking steroids? Everybody's taking them, you know, just, it's, it's, you see them in the dressing room every night, you know, and all the guys are big. And it seems to be that Vince uh, likes the guys that are veiny and not a lot of skin and a lot of muscles. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Raymond told me, no, no, we don't need it. I don't want it. And I looked at him and said, ah, that's true. We don't. But, but it could have been a turning point in my life. And uh, so I owe that to my brother Raymond. And, and, and so therefore, the guys that were straight and they weren't on pills, uppers, downers and steroids and alcohol and all that, uh, they were hard to, to, to deal with. But the guys that were sane, uh, they were easy to work with because not only they were good workers, they were, they were actually there when they got in the ring. And also they, uh, they took care of the guys they were working with. I never got hurt by Tito Santana or the guys that I mentioned before. I never got hurt by those guys because they, we, give, we give our bodies to our partners and we hope that they're going to take care of it. Oh, yeah. Look, looking back at it now, whose idea is it? Talking about the fabulous Brujo brothers, whose idea was it to have two Montrealers become all-American boys and claim Memphis, Tennessee is their hometown? <laughs> that was Vince. <laughs> yeah, that was Vince. And Jimmy uh, Jimmy recorded the music, uh, uh, our song. We went into Memphis, actually, where Elvis uh, went to do his recording when he was younger in the uh, Sam Something studio. I can't, I can't remember the name of it. But uh, if you go in Memphis and you still see where uh, Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and all those guys, when we, come in, we came into the studios... It was awesome. So we recorded our own song, and uh, Jimmy produced it. He wrote it, and uh, but we actually put the lyrics in French. Jimmy didn't know nothing about French, and uh, and we actually did the English song together. So we created that moment, uh, Jimmy, uh, with us, uh, Jimmy Raymond and myself, and that was uh, that was cool, very cool. What was it like to be managed by Jimmy Hart? Um, how hands on was he with you, uh, managing you on and off the screen? <clears throat> well, I got to tell you, out of all the names I mentioned. Uh, there was not a better man than Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart, I'm going to say something, you know, uh, I don't want to offend anybody. And, you know, people are going to say, ah, he's preaching for his own, uh, his own stable. But uh, Jimmy Hart was one of the only, only managers that I know that would come on a microphone and the first thing that he would say, contrary to all the others, Bobby Enon and Jim Cornette and, and all those guys that claimed they were the brain, they were smart and they knew all. Jimmy would get on the air and the first thing he would say is, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. My man, my man is the man. My, it, it, I don't know if you see what I'm getting at. Uh, uh, Jimmy Hart would never talk about himself. He would always promote 
my team here, the Heart Foundation, and he was always making us feel like we were the biggest thing on earth, and he was the smallest thing on earth, and it was fun because we'd return the favor. <laughs> you know, like, well, we had yeah. the, the greatest manager of all times is Jimmy Hart, and uh, and uh, so from far away, and, and you know, it's funny because I heard a podcast the other day, I'm into podcasts now, as you know, I'm starting Monday, but uh, I heard Jim Cornette, someone said some. they sent something to me. And Jim Cornette says, ah, Jacques is a little crazy and wild. And, you know, contrary to his brother Raymond, uh, who everybody liked, nobody liked Jacques. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's amazing. And when I heard that, I was a little hurt. But at the same time, I was saying, it's his character. He is like that. Because when I see him all the time, he says, hi, Jacques, hi, Jacques. So, uh, but that hurt me of Jim Cornette. But then again, some guys were, were in the business, uh, would make it with their hard work, produce songs, take care of their boys, uh, make costumes. How many costumes did Jimmy Hart come out with? And, and, and so, so Jimmy Hart is in a, uh, a class of his own. And, and just to prove it, today Hulk Hogan's manager is Jimmy Hart, out of the ring. And he's been for so many years, he books him everywhere, does all kinds of stuff. I don't know if it's anyway lately, but uh, I haven't talked to him in a couple of months, but uh, Jimmy Hart, is a, is a, he's a trooper. No doubt, no doubt. And uh, so how did the American aud audience really buy into the Fabulous Brujos gimmick when you were wrestling in the U.S.? And when you wrestled in Montreal as the Fabulous Brujos, did you still claim to be from Memphis, Tennessee? Wow. You're putting heat on me now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, God, we got to do what we got to do. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. But uh, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the fans, when we start saying that, that we were all American boys with our little flags and that uh, we came from Memphis, uh, people didn't like that very much, <laughs> especially when uh, when I was saying, uh, uh Happy Thanksgiving Day, you know, uh, or hi, I'm Jacques and I'm Raymond. We're the fabulous Russo brothers and happy Thanksgiving Day when it was Memorial Day. <laughs> uh, just a few mistakes like that. <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, we weren't under good graces of everybody. And, and at home, it was it was the same because they were insulted. The people at home at the beginning, they, they were, excuse my language, but they were pissed off. They, 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 my, my uncle Johnny, who, who was dead for a long time, must have been turning in his grave because the Rouge name has always been the good guys. But, you know, comes, uh, comes to shove, push comes to shove. Uh, when the time came after two years of me and Raymond doing what we could, and Vince came and told us, guys, you know, you're great workers and this and that, but, you know, we're going to have to do something to spice you up. And then he came up with the idea. And then we told Vince, says, well, give us a few days to think about it. And uh, so then we just talked about it in the car traveling. And then we said, hey, you know, let's try and do it. So, uh, but it was amazing. And, and, you know, out of all this, I got to say something. There's a couple of things I want to bring you guys up. Uh, Amber and, uh, and Bruce says, not many people know this. And I don't know till how long it lasted because I've had 42 years of career. But I could tell you this, I remember the first, uh, two, I started in 77, 85, the first eight, nine years of my business, when I was going in small territories in that time, in, in the 70s and 80s, when you were in the ring with a, with a heel, which is a bad guy, there's a baby face and a heel, and I was a baby face and there was a heel in the ring. And I'm sure you know, you knew this, Bruce, but uh, 
a lot of the, the bad guys were known as oh, big fat guys. And when I was young in my career, oh, they're dumb, they're idiots, and they're this. But did you know that there was not one wrestling move that was made in a match from the beginning to the, to the end, that it was the bad guy who was calling every shot? And, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, I think I see him talk. You know, he was in a headlock and I think I see him talk. Yeah, if I was, if you saw me talk, I was saying, what'd you say? <laughs> what'd you say? <laughs> because uh, the bad guy was calling the match. Uh, you'd, you'd have a headlock on him, example, and he'd say, okay, I'm tackle, drop down, leapfrog, arm drag, and take the head again. And then I'd go, boom, we'd go. And they would call the whole match like that. And I remember my father telling me after three, four years in the business, I told my dad, I said, hey, I'm getting good. <laughs> you know, I'm really good. And my dad would say, listen, let me tell you something. You're never going to be good in wrestling until you have worked as a heel. When you learn both sides of the metal, then you'll start to become a good worker. But as long as you haven't worked as a bad guy in the ring, you'll never be a complete wrestler. Well, the Fabulous Rujos were a great team and they were great heels. You had amazing matches with the Killer Bees, the Rockers, the Heart the Foundation. Oh, my God. I had so much fun with the Rockers and uh, Shawn Michaels, Marty Jannetty, and the, yeah, the Heart Foundation. Those were really good matches. But Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, God, they were so good looking. You know, and we and we, we thought we were good looking until we met them. And, and, and then we realized these guys were so hot with the, the girls. And, and so when we beat him up, especially Shawn Michaels, you know, when we got him beat up there, it was like a, he had so much sympathy from the crowd. And uh, it, it, was, it was different working with the Heart Foundation, though. Uh, how could I say that? Um, I would say, you see, oh, he's skating, he's skating. Yeah, I'm skating. <laughs> Let me see here. Uh, we say skating because there's a lot of hockey here. Okay. But anyway, uh, what I'm trying to say is it wasn't the same pleasure uh, working with Anvil and Brett. I had a lot more fun working with Brett alone. But with Anvil and Brett, there was there was just something, I don't know. Uh, Anvil wasn't the greatest worker, I got to tell you. And I love, you know, the guy's a great guy and, and rest in peace. And I'm not saying that to be mean or nothing, but compared to Brett, Anvil did not have the wrestling skills. And, and so it was a different style. When, when we'd work with, uh, I think I know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is when I'd work with Brett, I wouldn't feel him in the ring. But when you were with Anvil, he'd give you a tackle. You better hold on to your traps on your head, you know, because he, <laughs> he, he's going to run into you. And, uh, and he doesn't know otherwise because he's not a great worker. So he's just going to run into you. And, uh, and it's forearms that he gave, you know, instead of giving them like, boom, like this, he give them like this. So, so you never know what part of his elbow that's going to hit you. So, and if you want to make it look good, well, you got to touch. So, uh, so, uh, so I'd say that the, working with the uh, Shawn Michaels and Marty was probably the best uh, times that we had night after night after night, going one night in Paris, the next night in Milan, the next night in Philadelphia, next night in Hawaii. And we did 25 days a month like that, but it was easy because Shawn Michaels and Marty Janine are great, great workers. And you look at, you know, Shawn Michaels and Brett the Hitman Hart had amazing singles careers and multi-time champions. You, Fabulous Rougeau's also had great matches with, uh, demolition and the Bushwhackers. Do you think we'll ever see that golden age of tag teams again, like you had in the eighties? Do you think we'll ever see that again, or is that a one-time occurrence? Not, not with me. But uh, but I got to tell you, I don't know. I haven't been following wrestling, but it seems to me like it's it's changed a lot. One thing that really actually uh, 
turned me off tremendously was uh, not any match in particular. It was the way they were doing it. Uh, when I was there, uh, every promo we did, we created from our own mind. We sold ourselves to the camera. Uh, then one day, I don't know what happened, someone told me that they had to read it. Brett told me that. I was talking to Brett on the phone. He told me, he says, Ah, oh, Jacques, it's not like it used to be. What do you mean? He says, now they give us a sheet. You got to read the sheet. You got to learn the, the text they give you. So, so, so right then I'm saying, well, Jesus, they're taking all the, the charisma out of there. They're taking all the natural, uh, you know, you got to know the difference in your character and your true life, to be honest with you, to be, to be normal. But also you, you could look at it the other way. Uh, if you get up in the morning and your name is Macho Man and, and, and you're at home and Liz says to you, says, uh, Honey, he wants some toasts, and he turns on. He says, "Oh yeah." <laughs> then we got a problem. <laughs> but, uh, but but all that to say that, but there is something a middle in between, the guy that's lost in his character and the guy that could separate both. But to be honest with you, you spend more time in your character when you're on the road with WWF. Like we were on 25 days a month, but it wasn't only at night in the buildings. It was when you get up at six in the morning in the airports, and someone come up to you and. Hey, Mountie, can I get an autograph? Sure. Can I take a picture? <sighs> sure, sure. And, and so you become that, that character. But uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, do you see where I'm getting at? Yeah, like, absolutely. And uh, I guess two people that really had a hard time uh, separating from their characters were the British Bulldogs. Uh, talk about that now infamous moment when uh, you finally stood up to yourself. Obviously, you had some incidents with the British Bulldogs over the years, uh, well-documented. Talk about the time when you finally stood up for yourself in the locker room uh, to the bullying of the Dynamite Kid. You know, I, uh, I've been over and over this story, and now I've been hearing different sides of the stories. Imagine, I've been implicated in my biggest fight ever in my life, and I didn't have the true facts. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've learned through the, uh, the stories that uh, Kurt Enning, Mr. Perfect, was the one who really instigated this whole thing. And, uh, and I blamed uh, uh, the Dynamite Kid because he was doing it in front of me to all the other boys. He was doing it to everybody and him and Fuji and everybody playing ribs. And, and, and someone stooged and told uh, and said that it, was, uh, that it was the Bulldog who did it. And, but it wasn't. It was, it was Kurt Enning, uh, that I, I think, anyway, and uh, you'll hear the story from different people. And, uh, but uh, that changes the whole outlook. And you know what? When we got to WWF, the British Bulldogs were, uh, were my idols. Raymond and I, we'd look, we had a match in Madison Square Gardens with uh, the Bulldogs. And, uh, and uh, I got a big truck out here. I don't know what he's doing in front there. Sorry about the noise. I hope that... But anyway, we had a, a big match in Madison Square Gardens. And I think everything started from there. Really, the heat that we had between us. Yes, I was loud and uh, I was playing jokes all the time. Like, I thought it was funny. But uh, but uh, the thing is, is uh, I wasn't mean. I never was mean to anybody. I didn't. I was just some type of person that... Uh, I was very expressive. I was, uh, and uh, when we got into the Madison School Garden dressing room, when Vince was sitting with us and the Bulldogs, he, uh, he said, okay, guys, he said, listen, we're going to have a great match tonight, and, uh, and I want to have a 20-minute Broadway. No winners. And the Bulldogs, they were champions at the time. So uh, 
I think they were upset with that, that they didn't beat us in Madison Square Garden. And I think from then on, it was like uh, the heat started building. And uh, and I didn't like the way they lived, to be honest with you. They, they were on pills, on drugs, and steroids. They'd walk in the dressing room with needles up their butts in front of us. Like, you know, and they, they were so... Um, Anyway, so I, I guess through my body language, they must have known I wasn't a, I, I wasn't a fan of them anymore. Like coming in at five o'clock in the morning from the airports and being drunk, and then you had the hall there. You had a bunch of guys, like top guys, macho man. They were all straightened and uh, were all there waiting to take the plane. And they come in all messed up and loud, obnoxious, and cussing and swearing. And I must it must have shown in my face that I didn't like it. Because I wasn't brought up like that. And, and you know, I didn't like the, when kids come up to you in the airport because that was maybe a chance of a lifetime to see the stars and uh, excuse my language again. And someone say, fuck off. And after the guy asked for an autograph. Uh, so, so maybe they didn't like the way I looked at him after a while, but I never did nothing to him. I never talked against him. I just ignored them. And, and apart from, and I guess uh, sometimes when you're on the road, 25 days a month the heat builds up in different ways like you know and everything gets on your nerve like i remember when i used to start those trips the 25 day runs and then three days at home uh at the beginning of the trip everyone, hey how you doing brother how you doing brother but then after the 15th night it was like yeah hang in there brother hang in there and then at the end of the tour it was more like uh, i can't wait to get at home and I can't wait, you know, and nobody had patience and everybody was tired of seeing another wrestler. And I don't know if you understand what I'm saying, but it was almost like being married. Uh, it, it, like always with someone morning till night, you, we'd actually fly together and then we'd land and everybody was responsible to find their own hotels. But we usually always end up finding being at the gold gym or the world gym in the afternoon. So we'd meet again. We'd see him in the planes. We'd see him at night. We'd see him everywhere. So so there's heat that builds up and uh, tempers fly and medicines flying in everybody's pockets and mouths and so so it was uh, it was hard but uh, long story short there's one thing that we got to remember the British Bulldogs were the a sensation they were greatest athletes that I remember seeing they they had it all they they I, I loved those guys when we got to New York I loved those guys. Well, thank you for sharing. I. Uh, it's one of my uh, one of the great stories because it comes out with a good message, even though I can imagine at the time it was it was pretty messy and uh, and traumatic, I would assume. Um, but I know that the early 90s was a big time for you. Uh, your brother retired from wrestling in 1990. And then a year later, you moved on to uh, the infamous character, the Mountie, who kind of was the antithesis of what an actual Canadian Mountie stands for, which is why it was so popular. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, how was the Canadian government reaction, you know, to you putting on this massive platform, uh, the, this idea of the Mountie to the rest of the world? Was there major litigation that was occurring for the WWE. Uh, you know, what happened yeah. and how is it portrayed in Canada? I'd love to hear a little uh, background on that. Well, the Maori always gets his man. You got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I got to tell you, I had some great times with the, uh, the Maori here. Actually, I'm going to show you something really nice. This is the Intercontinental title. And, uh, oh, wow. For our listeners, you just showed us the belt if uh, people are just listening in. So yeah. still got it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I got the, I also got my tag team world belt too that I won with <laughs> the, the Quebecers, Pierre Carl and my brother Raymond Montreal. 
but uh, but yeah, the Mountie character was a, a, a awesome character. But uh, the RCMP in Montreal, the real Mounties, they were a little upset. They, I actually gave an image like, yeah, I wasn't such a nice guy. But uh, but they didn't like that. They took it seriously. And, and 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 today I look back at it, and it's okay. But I was upset with them because they actually took a lawsuit against WWF. And Vince had to stop my character. I wasn't allowed to wrestle in Canada anymore on TV. So by not being able to wrestle in Canada on TV, they had to start cutting me off the tapes in the States and everywhere else because they made one big, like two TV days per month. And they weren't going to start editing their own show everywhere on the world just because of me. So, so my character died. That's what went to the jailhouse match. But uh, I'll tell you what. I, I always think of this this uh, this story. It's uh, you know I do conferences in Quebec. I've been doing for twenty years conferences, and every time, whether it's for schools or for grown-ups or in my shows, my my one-man shows that I do, I always bring this scene on the giant screen behind me where there's two. We're actually in a little uh, resort up in Quebec, and uh, I'm in a park and I'm sitting on my horse, and this is like a vignette. And this vignette they introduced for like five weeks in a row before I came into the WWF. So, so Jesse the Body was at the ringside with Nate Jean. They'd say, hey, you know me, Gene, coming to the WWF soon as a Mountie from Canada. And, and then they show a vignette. And the vignette was so fun because I was on my horse. And I was uh, sitting in a park, actually on a park on my horse like this. And there's this car that drives up beside me. And it's two Americans that are lost, a guy and his girlfriend. So he pulls beside me in the vignette and then and he puts his window down and he looks up at the horse and me and he says, excuse me, officer. And I look down at him like, I'm not an officer on the Mountie. And so the guy looks at me like, oh. and then he looks at his girlfriend like, oh, my God, I just found a whack here. And then he looks back up to me in the car and he says, excuse me, Mr. Mountie, can you tell me how we can get back to the States? We're lost. And then I. I just look at him in a mean way and I get off my horse slowly and I get in his window. The guy had already put his window up and I get in front of his window and I say, come here. And so he looks at his girlfriend like, what should I do? And his girlfriend said, come on, get out. So then he gets out in the car and he follows me. So I said, come here. And I bring him in front of my horse and I pick my horse up like this and I put his face up like this. <laughs> and I say, you see this part of my horse? It always points to Canada. <laughs> and then I turned back around and I brought him at the tail of my horse and I put the tail up in the air and I put the camera right in there and I say, you see this part of my horse? It always points to the U.S. And the guy looked at me so afraid and he jumped back in his car and he took off. And uh, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever done. It was just amazing. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Mountie the Mountie had a lot of hilarious promos. So something tells me uh, WWE wouldn't want a, a police officer acting this way nowadays. Um, <laughs> um, now, obviously, one of the best uh, one of the best uh, moments for the Mountie was uh, winning the Intercontinental Title from Bret the Hitman Hart uh, when the ref counted to three and you were crowned the Intercontinental Champion. What was going through your mind at the time? I got to tell you real fast, <laughs> because uh, before I took the belt, we had a meeting with Brett and Vince and, uh, and Pat. Pat Patterson was in the room, and, and then he said uh, he, he had to convince Brett to give me the belt, because Brett didn't want to drop the belt. And uh, so finally he convinced him, with, but Brett said, well, I'll do it, but 
he says, I'm going to announce before the match that I have a pneumonia and that the, the, uh, the doctor doesn't want me to wrestle, but I'm going to wrestle anyway. So I finally beat a sick guy. But anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I became champion and I knew it was only temporary because Vincent told me, we're just going to drop the belt one night or two nights, can't remember, and then we're going back at the Royal Rumble, and then I'm, I'm wrestling against Piper. And Piper, rowdy, rowdy, Piper is going to take the belt away from me. So I was just like a switch transfer. And, and, and I remember when I, I got the belt that night, I, uh, I rushed back to the dressing room, and I had a couple of friends, a couple of contacts in Montreal that were newspaper guys. And I, and I called one of the biggest guys, the Montreal newspapers, the biggest paper. And, and, uh, and I said, Andre, I said, listen, I said, can I... Can I ask you a favor? He says, well, I'm a little busy tonight. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I got to ask you a favor. I said, I'm going to send you a picture with me in the belt. I won the Intercontinental title tonight. He says, well, he says, you mind calling me next week? And he says, I'll make a big story. And I said, no, 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 no. You can't call me next week. <laughs> I can't call you next week because I knew I was only going to have it for two days. <laughs> so, so I made sure I took a bunch of pictures with the belt and I sent it into the Montreal papers and everywhere that I became the Intercontinental Champion. But, but it only lasted two days. But it was the only thing that I kept in mind. Like, hey, I'm a little Quebecer here, a Montreal kid, you know. And I, here I am, Intercontinental Champion. And after winning the tag team champions of Raymond Montreal at one time, and uh, so, but for me as an individual to to, to hold the belt, it was it, I ha it was amazing. Uh, I was very happy. Was there ever thought to have a rematch? Did, did Vince ever pitch the idea of having a rematch between you and Bret the Hitman Hart at WrestleMania Eight? Nope. I was like I said, I was just a tool, you know. But I was a good tool in that business. I remember being another tool one night. I call myself a tool there, but uh, like in a in a a guy has a hammer and this and a saw, but it's a toolbox. Yeah, that's what I was looking for, a toolbox. Uh, I was another uh, tool in his toolbox. Uh, one night, uh, I can't remember if it was Hulk or Randy, Macho Man, who quit at an, uh, an argument they had with Vince. And so that night, Vince had to turn around and do something fast. And Sid Vicious, uh, Sid Justice was a heel. And, and, and you know Sid, how big he is and everything. Like he's, a, he's a monster. Uh, and uh, he, they, were, they wanted to push him as a baby face. But he was the biggest heel in the territory. And then and they got us in the room, the Mountie and me, uh, me as the Mountie and, and Sid. And he said, uh, he said to Sid, he said, Sid, he says, I'm going to turn you baby face tonight. And then Sid looked at Vince and says, um, how are you going to do that? And he says, I'm going to have you work with the Mountie. And then he looked at me and he says, that's, that, that's not going to turn me baby face. And, 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 uh, but he had it all planned and he did it right. But, but I want, I, I'm sorry about my, my noise here on my uh, laptop. But anyway, so uh, I hope it calms down. But anyway, uh, so, I, so I went into the ring and, and this is how Vince worked it out. And uh, because I had a lot of heat as the Mountie, the Mountie was really over it and, and, and that character. And, and so he sent me in the ring and, and I took the, the, the microphone and I said, uh, do you know who I am? And now the whole 20,000 people, they were boo. And said, no, I am the Mountie. And you know what? I don't think there's anybody in this, in this whole building that could come in the ring with me right now. That's man enough. And you know what? More than that. And now the people were pissed. 
And then I was saying, and more than that, I just walked out of a dressing room that's supposed to be a bunch of superstars and heroes. I don't see any man back there who could put me into my place. And right as that minute came, Sid Justice came out. And you know what? The roof took off. He was the biggest baby face from one second to being the worst bad guy to the best guy in the business. The, you know what I mean? Like the switch that we made. And they used me to do that. That was a great compliment for me because they, you can't use, like to create Batman, you need Robin. Uh, I don't know if you, you understand what I'm trying to say, uh, but it was a great position for me to be used in that position to switch a guy from babyface, top, top heel to top babyface. Well, another time you were used in that situation, your feud with the Big Boss Man, where the Mountie was absolutely loathed by the American audience. The Big Boss Man uh, was a law enforcement officer from Cobb County, Georgia. Um, and obviously this feud culminated uh, with you losing to him at SummerSlam, and you eventually spend a night in the New York City jailhouse. What? <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, unfortunately for you, uh, you were a jailbird that one night. Uh, a so jailbird. I forgot about that word. People used to scream that all over the territory. Jailbird, jailbird. Yeah, uh, funny. You're bringing it back seven years. Uh, you had a criminal record. Um, so whatever happened to your uh, giant cellmate in New York City that night? Uh, you're so funny, aren't you, Bruce? Uh, you want to get you want to get that one out? Okay, I'll, I'll do. It was a great it was a great match, a great storyline. It was for for a year. I was beating everybody and uh, beating all the the good guys in the territory. And Big Boss Man was beating all the heels. And and there was this clash coming together. The Boss Man and the Mountie couldn't. It had to happen. And so finally, we end up in the jailhouse match. And I'll I'll never forget that because. Uh, and the, the morning of the, the night at the Madison Square Garden, it was pay-per-view. It was one of my biggest nights on pay-per-view. And uh, and I got a phone a call from Pat. And Pat told me, he says, uh, Jacques, he says, uh, do you want to come to the New York precinct? It was like 9 o'clock in the morning. And I said to myself, well, okay. He says, we're going to do pre-tapes. I said, okay, no problem. He says, I'll be there. He gave me the address. said, no problem, I'll be there. And then when I hopped the phone, I said, hmm. They want me to go to the precinct to do pre-tapes. That sure doesn't look good for me tonight, <laughs> but <laughs> because the match had not happened yet. <laughs> but uh, I was hoping that I'd go over that match or do a disqualification or something, that it wouldn't be the end of that beautiful run we had. And uh, But unfortunately, it was the time for me to to, to let my place. and uh, But when they called me to do that, it was, it was amazing. It was what a time. I, I remember we did all kinds of sequences between uh, uh, between the event that night. We were supposed to be semi-main event. Hulk was main event. We were semi-main event, but we were put on like on second in the evening. Second match. Because uh, after every match in the evening, uh, uh, Jesse the Body Ventura would say something like, well, you know, me, Gene, let's go back to the New York precinct and see how the Mounties doing. So, so, so they put the match on early so they could do pre-tapes in the jail that I did that morning uh, at the precinct. But it was so fun. I did. That's when they had the first, excuse my language, but that was the first finger that they got in, in WWF. Because uh, when they asked me to put my prints down on that thing, that the officer could tell them, give me your finger. 
give me your finger. And I was pulling back and he said, give me the finger. And then finally I gave him the finger <laughs> and they showed that actually. And, uh, and at the end of that promo, they had a couple of things where they wanted to take my picture too. After the fifth match, they went back to the precinct and they were trying to take my picture with a, with a bar of numbers on my head, like I was an inmate or, and I was trying to get that. No, you're not taking my picture. I had my head down like this. You're not taking my picture. And finally, big boss man walked behind and he said to you, he says, he said something like, uh, hey, Mountie, because I was spending the night in jail. So he says, hey, Mountie, you're going to be in jail, but who's taking care of your wife tonight? And I looked <laughs> up like, ah. and then they took the picture with the number in the back. And then at the last part was hilarious when uh, they're dragging me into the cell and then they throw me into the cell and I'm pulling, you can't do this to me. I'm an international law enforcement officer. Let me go. I want my lawyer. And they were pulling and finally they throw me into the the jail. And then, the, but there was other people in there. And I just three, like 180 around, turned around, right hands are in the cage. Like, let me out of here. And I'm screaming and I'm really screaming. And, uh, and, uh, and then there's this guy that taps me in the shoulder and I just brush him off. Like, Leave me alone. No, no, no. So he taps again. And then finally I turn around like, you? And, and my nose was right in his belly button. And the guy was a monster. He's as big as I'm a giant and, and in my mind. And then he went and he looked, down, he looked down at me and he went and the camera got close on his face. And he looked down at me and he went, hi. And, and, and I swear to God, every roof around the world as Montreal included, it was 20,000 people in Montreal watching it in an empty arena, no wrestling, but just the giant screens. And, and I heard so much about that because everybody was saying that Maori's going to get tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and well, was, at, least, at least you finally uh, met your soulmate. So unfortunately that was the end of a great run uh, for the Maori. Uh, so you left, uh, the WWF, WWE in 1992, uh, and so did Jimmy Hart. But you came back in 1993 uh, with your new tag team partner, Pierre Carroulette, and you formed a new tag team called the Quebecers, uh, managed by Johnny Polo. You guys won uh, the tag team titles, as mentioned, three times. Uh, talk about uh, some of your epic feuds uh, with the Steiner brothers over, the, over that time. Oh, boy. <laughs> I like working with the Steiners. I just didn't. They were really upset that we took the titles because actually when I took a year off of the Mountie and then I called Vince up and, uh, and I told Vince, I said, Vince, I said, I, uh, I'm ready to come back. But I said, I have a, a guy that I met in Puerto Rico. He's a guy from my home because that night I was in Puerto Rico during my time, uh, my year off and I wrestled Abdullah and uh, he was in the first match. Uh, it was Carlos Colon's organization, and uh, and I was on the beach that day, and he just came, walked, tapped me on the shoulder. He says, "Hey, bonjour, Jacques. Uh, my name is Pierre Calouillet, and uh, and I'm a great fan of yours." And I said, uh, "I was wondering." I said, "I'm on the first match tonight." He says to me, and he says, uh, "Would you mind just looking at my match? That's all I'd like." I said, "Sure, my man. You know, a Quebecer, a guy from my home. Sure." He, and he says, I've been trying to send tapes to WWE for WWF actually for like 20 years. <laughs> he says, I don't get any response. So I said, hey, I'll look at your match. No problem. And I was wondering to myself, like, what was his caliber? And when I saw him perform that night, I fell in love with him. I said, that guy reminds me of Gumby. You know, the green thing we had when we were young, the green man there that you could pull from one end to the other and stretch his arms. Just, and, and you could throw on the cement floor and he'd get... <laughs> 
I couldn't believe that guy. He was like a balloon. And, and, and I looked at him and I, and I said, yeah, me and him could be a good team. So I, got, I went back home, actually, after I saw his match. And I said, hey, man, you're good. You're good, man. And I said, uh, how would you like to come back to New York with me? And he said, oh, I couldn't believe nothing and all that stuff. And eight months later, well, there we are in the, at Raw. And uh, it wasn't, uh, it was a different place than New York. It wasn't Madison Square Garden. It was a place where they did Raw at the beginning. It was like, uh, I don't know, maybe like thousand people but it, well, i can't remember what the place was anyway so the first night we come in we sit with the steiner brothers they're champions and right in front of my eyes and says we're going to switch the belts tonight and i saw the steiners die they just died right there with their eyes like and i said this is not fun because <laughs> i knew the business i said these guys are not having fun at all <laughs> you know why because so you don't have the Steiner, sorry, Jock, the Steiner brothers could not compete with the province of Quebec rules, right? Exactly. But they, whatever the gimmick was, it doesn't matter to me. The thing was, is they were strapping them from the belts. They were taking the belts off of it. And just to give you an example, how they didn't like it, about a month later, it was in Winnipeg. And, uh, and before going to the show that night, someone called me to my room and they said, Jock, you better watch it because when you get in the dressing room tonight, uh, I, heard, I just heard through the grapevines that Ludwig Borga is going to kick your butt. And I said, what? <laughs> that was like in the gym in the afternoon. And I said, and I had to wait till night, you know, and I said, well, why are you saying that? He says, well, so you, you supposedly you, you took a knife and you cut his tires on his Cadillac uh, last night at the hotel room. And I said, I didn't do that. That's not me, but it was the Steiners who did it. And then and the Steiners, not only did they cut the tires, they went to see Borga to say that we did it. <laughs> and, uh, so long story short is I, uh, I'd already been the feud with the Bulldogs and I didn't, I didn't, that's not my world. And I, so I, I called the office and I told the office, I said, listen, I just, I talked to Tony Garia, I said, Tony, you got to understand something. I'm not calling to Stooge, <laughs> but I'm just saying that this is the situation and I don't want anybody to butt in. I'm going to go face my problem that I'm not, that I didn't even create. But I'm going to go do it. But I just want you to tell the agent that something may happen, and I just don't want to get beat up so bad that I don't recognize myself tomorrow morning. You know, because Ludwig Borga wasn't just uh, it's uh, pretty good. You wrote, <laughs> and he was a boxer, he's a fighter. Is anyway. Uh, so I got to the dressing room that night in Winnipeg, and. Uh, and the car well, that was with me all day, and he was shaking in his pants. He couldn't believe that, that, that they, there was going to be a fight with me and him, Borga, that night. So when we got at the building, I just told Carl, I said, Carl, I don't want you to, to help me. I said, I'll take what I have to take. But I said, uh, I don't want him to kill me either. <laughs> you know, so if you see that I'm on the floor and I'm not moving anymore, just make sure you get him off of me. You know, or that's all I'm asking. And uh, so I got into the dressing room and, and Borga was playing cards with the uh, Billy Gun of the Smoking Guns, uh, Billy Gun. And uh, they were sitting in the dressing room. I opened the door and, and I guess that the Steiners were there. Everybody was there. They already stirred the shit up. You know? So they all told everybody, watch this, man. Watch this tonight. Borga's going to kick Rougeau's ass big time when he comes. Watch this and watch this. Everybody was so primed. and so. But I knew the game. 
and I, I and I knew there was something in my favor, not much, but there was one thing in my favor. Jacques's not a fighter, but he's not going to stay down. He's not going to just let you do something to him without making a comeback. I did it with the Bulldogs. So I had that playing for me, my reputation, but I'm not a fighter. I'm not. And uh, so I got in the dressing room and I played the game. I just opened the door and Borgo was right there beside me. And I said, Ludwig, I'm the first one to talk. I said, Ludwig, can I talk to you in the hall, please? And I swear to God, that freaked his mind up because there was so much tension built. He thought that it was going to be an easy game or I was going to cry or say, no, 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 I didn't do it or whatever. And I played the reverse psychology with him. I came in and I said, hey, Ludwig, I didn't say Borga. I said, hey, Ludwig, do you mind coming? I'm very serious. I said, hey, Ludwig, do you want to step out, please? And everybody in dressing room, you could hear a pin fall in the dressing room. And then he, he looked at me, and I swear to God, he made my day. He looked at me like this, and he says, no. <laughs> and I said, you could come out. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> it's like I'm saying I'm not going to do anything. That was wild. And then anyway, so, so he gets up. He doesn't have a choice. I'm very serious. And I said, don't worry. I said, I just want to talk to you. So then he got up, and when he came in out, and the first thing I told him again, he never had a chance to speak. He got up in the dressing room and I looked at him and I said, uh, Ludwig, I'm just going to say one thing. I didn't cut your tires. I don't do, I don't play those games. But I think I know who did it. But I'm not going to accuse, I don't have any proof. But I know for a fact, I didn't do it. You want to fight? We'll fight. But it's going to be to make the other people happy. So whatever you want. He says, no, I don't want to fight. I said, well, me either. I have to put my hand on his shoulder, and we became friends. Yeah, I guess later on you would ta- you guys would be in a tag team in Survivor Series, uh, I think, uh, as part of an international team. Oki Shikina was, uh, Oki, uh, no, what was his name? Uh, Yokozuna was with us, I think, in that match. Yeah, that's right. Was, uh, I, I, yeah, I forget the name of the team, but it was like yourself, uh, Pierre, uh, Yokozuna, and maybe Ludwig Borga as part of the international yeah, team in Survivor yeah. Series. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me a little souvenir there. But, you know, he became my friend after that, and he had a lot of respect for me after that. And uh, But yeah, I'll tell you, uh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. A lot of mind games in that business, and I'm sure glad I would never, never. Uh, if I started my life again and I was offered to go to the WWF, I, I, w- I wouldn't go. Do you still have a oh, heat oh. with Scott Steiner to this day? No, I, I like Scott. I, you know, and the worst part is, God, it's amazing. I like Scott. You know, I haven't seen him when he became Papa Punk and all that, uh, Papa Pump or whatever after that there. But when I, when he was Scott Steiner with the long black hair and he was the Steiner brothers, we got along good, you know, like respectfully good. But they, they, they were just sneaky. Uh, to, to set up things like that, but but and it's like I was telling Jim Cornette before. You know, it's funny because Jim Cornette every time he saw me, he was like, "Oh, he's hi, Jock. How you doing, Jock? How you doing, Jock?" And then I hear in a post that he that, that everybody hates me and this and that. And it's funny. I think of all the guys I work with, the Bushwhackers, uh, uh, everybody, Tito Santana, the guys, everybody in the dressing room. And, and like I said, I wasn't uh, I wasn't uh, perfect. I'll be honest with you. I, I wish I could go back and fix some things. You know, because I used to. You know, I'm going to tell you something, Bruce, that you're going to freak out. Go for it. When I was young, when I was young, Bruce and Amber, my dad, when I was like, uh, I think it was 12, 10 or 12 years old, they wanted to, to, to send me, uh, my father wanted to send me to a place to, to, to get some help. Because, you know, in life you have, uh, 
normal people. And then you have, let's say normal people are here, and then you have autistic people, which, you know, are, are they're missing things in life, you know. And, and then right in the middle here, there's me. I've had some problems with all my life of trying to coping with things and doing things. I don't know how to explain this, but but uh, I, I'm I'm a big baby in a in a man's body and and a, and, a, and a child's brain in this body, and uh, so I fought all my life to try to to be in the game, and thank God I had talent in, in wrestling, and that's what made me go through it all. But uh, everything to me, it's almost like when I have a lot of autistic friends. That when I see them, they're always, oh, John, I love you, John, I love you. And they love you so much and they're so touching and they're so close. And I had that in me. I, I, I had that. Uh, so it caused, it caused me that what little joke, what little rib in the dressing room or what little circumstance that would happen, to me it was like big, a lot bigger than it, it really was in life. So uh, maybe that's why uh, Jimmy Cornette said that. But I got to tell you, uh, if ever Jimmy Cornette could get this message, I'd like to send him uh, a message. I like you, Jim. I, I, I always liked you. You had a big mouth, a loud mouth. That was your character. But I always liked you. And I always liked when you said hello to me. And I'm, I was really hurt when I heard those comments. And uh, and I guess maybe you're not the only one. But as, that, but when they were in front of me, the boys, they they, they said hello to me. And I got along with the boys. So, so anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because my father always said something. And, and, and like I said, my father died last year. And he always told me the best advice I ever got. After a while, I understood, but it took me a while. But it was like, in life, if you don't have anything good to say, just don't say nothing. And, 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 and I was a guy who, who needed attention. I was, like I said, I wasn't quite normal, but. Anyway, I was hanging in there, but I, I always needed attention. And sometimes maybe I got on the guy's nerves by trying to get like silly things or silly jokes or this. And maybe they thought I was a little under, uh, under normal. I don't know how to say it, but, but, but maybe that uh, made them feel like I was annoying or stuff like that. But I, I never was a mean person. I never meant to be hated by anybody. I, I fought for my position in my business and I always said yes, yes, yes to Vince when he asked me to do jobs and Lord knows I did a lot more jobs than I went over. And uh, but, but it didn't count to me. It wasn't important but because what was important to me was make sure we have a good match because some, so many times I walked out of a match losing and I'd turn around and after the good guy would be his hands up all the way to the dressing room, got the ovation. And then I'd stand up in the ring and I'd say, I am the bounty. And people would hate me as much as they did at the beginning. And, and I knew how to keep my heat, at, even if I was getting beat. So, so, so uh, but as far as uh, guys uh, not liking me, there was a couple, like everybody in the business, you can't like everybody, but most of the guys, they always said hello to me, and Jim Cornette was one of them, and and so it uh, just goes to show. Well, Jacques, I wanted to thank you for being so open and, and vulnerable, you know, and expressing that, you know, perhaps people sometimes would misjudge you because of your physical stature and, and not really understand that, you know, you as many people out there have some sort of limitations, whether that be processing or, or social, but you really were an amazing team player and clearly such a great uh, role model to so many kids out there that maybe also are dealing with limitations and, nice. and want to, yeah, I want to see someone that kind of mirrors them and has such success. So I, it's, uh, it's really moving to hear and I appreciate that. 
Um, I know in your career, thank you. I know that, uh, you know, hit 94 came and you retired, but then in 96, you reemerged with the WCW as the amazing French Canadians, um, which led you to wrestling Ted Turner. Can you maybe speak about that and kind of what the different culture, uh, of the attitude or was there compared to the WWF? Well, I'll tell you when I went to WCW, it was just, I was trying to survive. And uh, we had there was no more small territories. So it was two big ones. So, so I went there, and uh, but the atmosphere was completely different. Too many guys were trying to run the the promotion, and uh, and and everybody was trying to outsmart or outdo. And so it, it wasn't like that. And WWF when I was there, there was Vince McMahon. He had a meeting every TVs with ten of his guys, Pat Patterson on his side, and all the agents. Uh, uh, Gorilla Monsoon, there was uh, Chief J. Strongbow, there was Rennie Goulet, there was uh, uh, all the guys, our agents that were so nice, uh, Chief J. Strongbow, which I played golf with, and, but, but a lot of guys, and they, they came around Vince, and they supported and created a show for Vince. When I went to WCW, they were all pulling on the blanket. And, and, and so I didn't last very long there. I didn't like, uh, I definitely uh, didn't get along with uh, Bischoff. Uh, I, 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 just difference of opinions and difference of ways of acting. And so I, uh, there was no respect for me out of him. So it made it hard. And so when I saw that coming, that's when I made the move. And I went to see Hulk and I said, listen, Hulk, I said, I have the power in Montreal to bring WCW to TV. I have a connection with uh, Cookie Lazarus. He's the biggest lawyer in Montreal. He was Donald K. Donald's lawyer. He was Ren Angelo's lawyer. He was everybody's lawyer. Like he goes around the world. So I said, I had that power to bring WCW on TV. And I said, but the only thing I'd like to do, Hulk, is I'd like to wrestle you. I want to wrestle you. And, and Hulk at that time, it was amazing. You talk about timing with Bischoff or with everybody. I don't know what was going on because he never spoke about his business, Hulk. But he agreed to wrestle me. And I know Bischoff wasn't happy, but he was a lot less happy when I beat Hulk in Montreal. <laughs> I'll tell you, that sure didn't help my case. <laughs> but anyway, it didn't help my case with Bischoff, but it sure helped my case with the, the, the Quebec people. Because from then on, I, I, I became much more a legend than I am, really. <laughs> but, but Hulk really created me in, in Montreal, brought me to a level that was a little higher than what I was. I was uh, I was ringside for that match in April 1997 oh, yeah? <laughs> in Boston Center. I was there, and we were we were all all the Quebecois and the Montrealers in the crowd were cheering for you like crazy. Uh, at the time, uh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute, Bruce. Now, let's be honest here. You don't don't you be a nice guy. When I got okay, in the fine. ring, they okay, were fine. booing I, I, me. They I, were I booing me. <laughs> I had an, I had an NWO shirt on. I was cheering for Hogan. <laughs> uh, I called out. <laughs> you called me out because you were. You weren't the only one, I'll tell you. But, uh, but when I built that match, when I created that show, because I actually rented the most, etc. I'm the one who created that show with Cookie Lazarus. And, and he rented the money, and I did all the promotion and everything. And when I did that, I called that the Battle of the Legends. But I swear, well, the Quebec legend against the world legend. But I thought that maybe my fans at home would have supported me a bit more. And I guess Hulk was just Hulk. And uh, and I did. I, I must not have. I messed up <laughs> anyway. So 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 I told Hulk that night. I said, "Listen, Hulk. I said uh, we got to uh, 
I'm gonna go on. I'm gonna go in first. Although I'm the baby face in this match, and you're the heel, the heels always going first. I said, I'm gonna go in first, just out of recognition for you, you know. Just to, and when I they announced me, I got in the ring. Ninety nine point nine percent of the people booed me, and I died. People don't know how much I died. I'm in my hometown, my 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 dream match, and they're booing me and I'm a baby face. It's like this, this wasn't part of my plan. And uh, so I went out there and as you know, Bruce, you were sitting there. I worked my butt off and I didn't cheat and I worked and he cheated. He railed me, he hit me a tail and everything and chairs. And, and I kept uh, sticking to the rules. And with my, uh, my selling, I think I managed to get 50% of the sympathy of the people. And when I won the match, I look at the tape again today, and there some are, are surprised. Everybody's surprised, but I mean, some jumped up that they probably didn't thought they'd jump up. And I did that small package, one, two, three, and it was amazing how I finally won a little bit of my pride back that night. <laughs> yeah, like I'll be, I'll be honest, probably no one thought, you know, at the time, Hulk Hogan had a reputation of not wanting to do jobs, not wanting to lose matches. And we never thought, especially at the height of his popularity in the NWO, he just turned heel in 1996 at Bash at the Beach. Like, I'll be honest, we never thought you had a chance to win, but the fact that you did win was amazing. Did Hulk tell you anything prior to the match? Prior, no. Actually, Hulk was a little pissed off at me before the match because uh, we did a promo about a month earlier in Atlanta, Georgia. No, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it was in Florida. They were taping in Orlando, Florida, the tapings at the time. And he, I was doing a promo, and I worked it with, with Hulk. That d While I'm doing a promo, he comes in from behind, and he says, Ah, you... I can't remember what he says, blah, blah, blah. And then he slaps me right on the side of the head. That was a month before the show. We started building some, some juice for the show. And, uh, and he hurt the hell out of me. He hit me so hard with this part instead of this part and he hit me with this part and he hit me and I swear I was in the interview and I was going like I couldn't even remember what was going on I, I knew I got hit by Hulk I knew I had to get hit by Hulk but I swear I couldn't remember what I had to do but we cut the promo there it was good it was a shoot it looked good and then when he got to Montreal the night of the show, I went to CFCF12 and TVA and I went to all the big TV stations and I said hey I'm reserving a surprise for Hulk at the airport I said, if you want to come film, you'll see something you've never seen before. So all the media, they got into the wave and they uh, they came at five o'clock. And when Hulk landed at five o'clock, boom, there's there's a big limo waiting for Hulk. Uh, and, and he's coming out and cutting promos. Ah, Rouge out tonight and this and that. The cameras are falling, but no one knew what was going to happen. And when he got close to the limousine, he op I opened the door from inside. I was hiding and I came out and I Pow! I slapped them right on the mouth, and because of the timing, I, 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 usually usually we slap a guy in the neck. When you slap a guy in the face, it's, you slap him in the neck, and it sounds like you slap. The only thing that shows is a thumb that's here, but the rest is in the neck. So you could pop it as hard as you want, a real good slap. So, so anyway, long story short, it's... I did the pow, and then panic started at the airport because although I didn't warn the cops and everything at the airport, you're not allowed to fight in an airport. That's arrested right away. So, so anyway, I got away with it. So I slapped him, and, and he's going, oh, shit, and, and I'm gone. I'm in the limo, and I'm gone. And uh, so, so I, he had another limo waiting for him, so I had a limo waiting for me. I took off with his limo, so the other limo pulls up, 
And then two minutes later, Carl Wallet's with me in the limo. He's just assisting me for the angle. He wanted to see that. So he's sitting in there. And when I get back, and I say, okay, take off, take off. And uh, so as we're taking off, about two minutes later, I'm on a drill, and then Carl is like shaking in the car. It was so good. It was people going nuts at the airport. Like it was a commotion. And then the phone rings in the limo. And then it's Hulk. He says, uh, uh, the, the driver in the front says, Mr. Rougeau, pick up the phone. So I picked up the phone beside me. And he said, brother. I said, Hulk, thank you so much. He says, you, brother, you broke my tooth. I said, I, 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 I'm sorry. He said, you broke my tooth. And then he hung up. <laughs> <laughs> so when we got in the ring or that night, I'll tell you, the match was stiff. Uh, he laid some good shots into me. You know, when he dropped my legs into the railings, you saw that when he threw me outside the ring and he dropped, uh, he picked me up from underneath and he put my legs up in the air and he dropped me right on the railings. He actually tore my, my ligaments and terriers in the back of my knees when he did that. And then the, the slaps were at the beginning there. He was trying to, he just told me like, Hey, you broke my tooth and it's coming to you. You're going to get it. But he forgot that he did that to me in, in Florida first. But anyway, I wasn't going to argue. Well, I guess, but I'll have I guess, to say that. I guess Hollywood, uh, I guess he gave you the, the receipts uh, for that uh, that broken tooth. Exactly. But exactly. I, know, yeah. I, know that, I know that in retirement, um, you, you caught up with uh, Hulk Hogan uh, on your Winnebago trip. Talk about reconnecting with him last year. That was awesome. I stopped at his place there in, uh, in Orlando. Uh, he opened up a shop there, a beach shop. Uh, it's Hulk Hogan's Beach Shop, I think it's called, uh, and it was awesome because uh, he actually went on the air on his uh, Facebook or whatever it's called. There is uh, he, uh, as you can see, I'm a little dinosaur with all these technologies. But anyway, uh, uh, he's got a website, and he actually put a, a, a clipping that because when I showed up at the door, there was like a line of people outside, and then I told the guy, the security guard, the guy I said, Can you, uh, "Listen, I'm just coming by." I am I'm stopping by. I just want to say hi to Hulk. Uh, he says, well, you're going to have to get in line. I said, because <laughs> I didn't look like a wrestler. And he says, I said, no, no, it's okay. I said, tell Hulk that the Jacques Rougeau is there. He said, Jack Rougeau? I said, just tell him the only Canadian that beat him is here at the door. <laughs> so, so the guy went in and he went to, he couldn't say my name. So he went in and he went to see Hulk. And uh, so the guy came right back to me and says, okay, come on in, come on in. He says, go over there. Like, he put me in an area where he had some dolls and belts for sale and everything. And, and next thing you know, I hear, from far away, I hear, I can't believe it. He already beat me in Canada. You want to come and beat me here again too? And he starts a promo like that, putting me over. And it was like, couldn't believe it. <laughs> Back in the old days. Awesome. Yeah. In retirement, also you um you have a you had a famous wrestling school in, in Montreal, and you trained uh, really popular stars like Kevin Owens, uh, KO, and Devin Nicholson. So you produced some great talent out of your wrestling school. Do you do you miss it? What have you what have you been up to in retirement? I I quit uh, two years ago. My my last match with uh, eleven thousand people at the Jerry Park in Montreal tag team you know, with my three sons. So the four Rougeos, the same way my dad retired uh, thirty two years ago with Raymond Armand, myself, his three sons in the ring with him. I did the same thing with my three sons. It was amazing. It was really amazing. And then after that, I just I stayed in. I, I'm an entertainer, and I know I have that 
uh, going for me that uh, uh, I'm better in French, by the way. But anyway, I'm a good entertainer. And um, so, so long story short, as I stayed in the one, I, I wanted to go towards one man shows like stand ups. But then I decided to take my career and put my wrestling career in a, in, in a conference. But I didn't call it a, a conference because conference for me is boring. People read and if you sit there for an hour or two and you listen, I called it a, a, a humoristic conference. Conférence humoristique. So that's humor. So then people say, oh, what does he mean by humoristic? So people, and you know, I've been doing shows for like uh, four years now. I started that two years before I actually quit uh, wrestling. And uh, all my shows are sold out. It's 800 people, 600 people, 400 people. And I have my, my, my girlfriend with me and she puts my pictures on the screens of the highlights, the bulldog fight, the this when I beat Hulk and, the, and all the Rougeau tradition and the Rougeau family, the history, but with a lot of humor. I, I put a lot of humor in my shows. And so I've been doing that. And, and it's amazing because I'm, I'm very lucky because when I go in all the companies in Quebec, not since the COVID, uh, I've been sitting here doing nothing. But I mean, before that, I'd go in any, any town in the province of Quebec and, and I go in the industrial park where all the companies are at. And then I go knock at the door. And then I come in the door and I say, excuse me. I said, is, uh, is your boss here today? And the, and I swear to God, everywhere I'd go in, they'd say, Mr. Rougeau? And I'd say, yeah, how you doing? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, hold on a second. And then they'd go run the back and the boss would come out. I can't believe it. Jacques Rougeau, what are you doing here in my company? Well, actually, I'm coming to sell some tickets. And, uh, and then I'm producing a show and I talk to them for about 15 minutes and I'm out of there and I just made $1,000 for 40 tickets. And I'm doing, I, I've been doing that. I go work. I swear to God, I, I, I'm the luckiest man on earth because I'm doing what I still love. I talk about my passion and everything and I sell tickets like crazy. <laughs> so it's like uh, life has been good to me. I, uh, I turn things around. And, and, but now since the COVID, it's, it's been a little rough. But now I have got three shows coming up in the Rouen Arado that instead of having 800 people, I, I, I had one show actually in uh, 800 people. And, and because of the COVID, it was the companies that some canceled because it was supposed to be last, uh, like in, in April. And, uh, but, but 600 people are coming out of the 800 that were supposed to come. And instead of doing one show of 800 people, I'm going to do three shows of 200 people where you could sit 800 people. So because of the COVID, but, but it's okay. I'm not going to make much money, but at least I'm going to give the show that people paid for, you know, and they wanted last year. And, and from now I'm, now I'm starting my podcast and I got a lot of sponsors that, I, that, that called me and they, I haven't even started my show yet, but they know me out of reputation and stuff. So I made a few calls and I said, Hey, I'm doing this. And would you like to, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. So I finally managed to turn around together to get something going now, like starting Monday. So I'll be able to start getting a salary again and getting off the government's money because I was on the PCU there, like everybody that couldn't, any entertainer, singer that couldn't go sell tickets or do shows. So I'll be glad to get off that and have a normal life again and start uh, start going again. Amazing. And I mean, this is such a, a pivotal time for people who are kind of chomping at the bit for entertainment. So in a way, it's kind of a, a giving back situation, which, you know, you're really known for. I think we've, you know, we've talked a lot about your your WWE, WWF career. But how I was first introduced to you was two years ago when you visited our offices and you gave a very passionate speech surrounding uh, anti-bullying, you know, so, uh, you know, revolving around the, the British Bulldogs situation, which you talked about um, 
briefly earlier. I, I would love for you to tell your, our listeners more about, you know, the anti-bullying crusade that you've embarked on for, I think, a couple of decades now and really what it means to you and, and what you've done to put the work in to help, you know, kids coming up. Thank you very much. It's very kind. I, 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 it's, a, it's a cause that I took at heart because once you almost leave your skin there, <laughs> you, you stayed uh, marked by it in your life. And, and my instinct was to turn around and go into kids. And I've been for 20 years, I've been doing con- excuse me, <clears throat> conferences in schools and helping bullying. And you'll see actually Monday when, uh, when you see my podcast for the first time, uh, I got this company who joined me 20 years ago that produced books with a uh, my family and my, and who joined the intimidation movement with with me and uh, what can I say? They, they, uh, all the artists that are coming because my podcast coming up now is not only on wrestling. I have so many different eras that I'm going. Like uh, first guy I have on Monday is Georges Champion, yeah, GSP. You know the Ultimate Fighting Champion, World Champion, the GSP. And then the next uh, week I have Abdullah the Butcher. And then the the next week I have Marie Lentibai, which won Star Academy and went to sing with Celine Dion in Vegas. And the week after that I have a, a Rabbi Piché, who's the pilot who the plane motor stopped and he had 300 people. I don't know if you ever read that story, or heard about it, but he landed a plane on an island in the Samoans or somewhere, and he had no motors but he knew that little island and he saved 300 people he became a national hero in canada rabbi Pichy. and uh, so so he's going to come to my podcast and and while i was talking to him last week it was amazing because i told him i said rabbi i said i've seen you everywhere i said i've heard all the stories but i said you're going to hear different questions from me and i said the first question i'm going to ask you when you come and i hope you don't mind but i said i want to know when you were sitting in that plane and the first thing that crossed your mind when you realize something's going wrong and then I want you to take me all the way into the island I want you and you know what he answered me he says Jacques it's amazing I did 2,000 interviews since that happened he says no one's ever asked me how I felt so that's going to be amazing just to, to see how he felt, how he was afraid and, uh, and the pressure and that's going to be a great podcast don't you think we're looking forward to that podcast. We know uh, it's coming out next Monday. How could people download your podcast? Uh, talk about some of the exciting guests you have lined up. Oh, my God. I got a paper here. Where did I put that paper? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I got, well, I got Bret Hart. Bret the Head. Uh-huh. Really? That's going to be there. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got uh, a lot of stand-ups, uh, comedian stand-ups. I got Mario Liret, Pinantel, Alex Perron, P.A. Méthode, Réal Bélin. I got uh, Marc Dupré, who does The Voice. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I, like, I love to sing. And, and uh, not in front of anybody, but I love to sing in the shower. <laughs> and, uh, but I always watch The Voice. I love The Voice. And Marc Dupré is the, one of the coaches in Montreal, so he's going to come to the show. And then I got Giant Hergen, who worked for me many times, did the movie 300, Sherlock Holmes, the big giant that that fights and uh, he's got two more movies coming. He's going to come talk about that. Then who was I got? I got Jean Villeneuve. Jean Villeneuve is a, a, a car racer. Of course. Uh, the Villeneuve family. And uh, so, so his, his, his brother died, Gilles Villeneuve. Many years ago, he was a national hero. And then he wrote, he, he actually raced in Indies and then he raced in uh, snowmobiles. So he's going to come and talk about how he, the death of his brother, the, the transition to cars, the skidoos and, and all that stuff. So, so I'm going to have different eras every week 
And I'm also going to have English and French on my podcast. But here's how it works. I want to be fair with everybody. Most of the talent I have here, they're French. So I'm going to make sure that every time I have a French guest that I sous-tit. How do you say that sous-tit? Uh, Subtitle. Uh, how do you say that? Subtitle. Subtitle. Subtitle, yeah. Underneath in the bottom of the screen there. And I'll have uh, in, in English. And when I talk to Abdullah, well, I'm going to sub... And, and Brett, I'm going to subtitle in French. So, so I'm going to make sure that everybody can follow whether you're English or French, but uh, there's going to be a lot of, uh, with me, a lot of gestual, so it's going to be fun. But, uh, but uh, you'll be able to understand on the bottom, too, uh, what's said up on top. But uh, awesome. I'm really, we, really excited. We couldn't be more excited to tune in uh, next Monday for your first podcast. We'll be listening every week. And one last thing, it's, it's a truly a travesty of justice that the Rougeau family is not in the WWE Hall of Fame. You see all these famous families like the Von Erichs, the Colognes, they are in the Hall of Fame. What will it take for Vince McMahon to finally put the Rougeau family in the Hall of Fame? I think the Mountie could be in the Hall of Fame. I think the Quebecers could be in the Hall of Fame. You could be a three-time Hall of Famer. I think I Vince think McMahon I, needs to rectify this. I think we're going to have to put make bygones be bygones. We're going to have to turn the page. And uh, I was very unhappy with decisions that he took. And he was probably the same with me. And you know when you have a falling out with someone, whether it's in a marriage or couple, don't it takes two to dance. You can't just blame one. And for many years, I blamed him. And for many years, he blamed me. And But the truth is, is, is it takes two. And uh, water you could put in your wine. And so I, I, I become, a, it's a time now for me to realize that, hey, you know, what happened? It happened. And, uh, but but it's, it's, it's unfair, unthinkable that my father and my uncle, Johnny Rougeau and Jacques Rougeau are not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, that the Rougeau name, is like uh, the Funks, the Von Erichs, the Grahams, the, the Hearts. The, you can't leave that name out of the Hall of Fame unless you want one day call it the Hall of Shame. But, but the, the thing is, no, I shouldn't say that, but, but I really want to get in the Hall of Fame. I deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I've worked, I've dedicated my life to, 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 to do what I've, I've done best in wrestling. But I, I honestly think that personal, uh, personal feelings should not be a question when you talk about a Hall of Fame. It should be only judged on the performances and the... I don't know how to say it, but uh, it, it, uh, I think the Rougeau name should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, no matter if you get that Hall of Fame ring or not, you're a Hall of Famer in our books, and you're a top-notch guy. Quebec loves you. The world loves you. So thank you for joining us today. We're looking forward to the podcast. One more thing. Go ahead. Yes. Can I give my address to the podcast, if you don't oh, mind? Oh, absolutely. Please go ahead. So it's all in little letters. No capital letters. It's all little letters. It's Jacques Rougeau. So it's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S-R-O-U-G-E-A-U dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-U. E-A-N.com. So it's jacquesrougeau.podbean.com. Start at 11 o'clock Monday morning with the GSP Jacques Champion. So excited. We'll be tuning in. Jacques, merci beaucoup. We appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning in. You can find us on the web at www.researchfdi.com, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter at ResearchFDI. Tune in next week as we have another guest from the economic development world.